politics is in a mess and everybody's angry. But when I look around, where are the bread lines and where are the soup kitchens and the electricity hasn't broken down so far? The coffee is better so, than it was 10 years ago? <laughs> most definitely. Still a hassle to get around town. <laughs> but, but it seems like things are working. Politics isn't. But they are two very different things. And as long as politics gives us some room, gives entrepreneurs, scientists, hardworking people an opportunity to just go around their daily business fixing things. They solve more problems every day than they create. And that's why I'm an optimist. Do you think it's fair to say that the problems we have now are actually problems of, of excess? Because in a sense, the, the, the economic system we've got is so successful yeah. that it creates congestion at airports, it creates yeah. too much food. Um, do, do you think we, we've switched in a, in a generation or two from having genuine shortages to actually now having a problem where we've, we've got so much. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the case. We are replacing old, horrible problems that used to kill us with much better problems that are still difficult and we have to deal with them, but they're much easier to handle. Uh, it used to be in the 1940s that around half of the world population lived in chronic undernourishment. Now the problem is too much food. Obesity, and that's also bad, but it's not as bad as watching your kids not having enough food to eat. Uh, we have congestion, that's right, but how did you get around this town 150 years ago? Well, you wouldn't make it to the other side of town. because Or, 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 or you would have had a horse-drawn carriage, which any rich people could afford, and everyone else would have had to make do with walking around often barefooted. Exactly. Um, you, you very much argue that it's free market capitalism that's, that's achieved this, and I mean, you wouldn't I don't think necessarily call it capitalism, but this, this network of interdependence. Um, would you say that it's, you know, the story of our time is that what was a, a European and a North American phenomenon is now gone global. Now yeah. everyone is starting to catch up. Quite right. And they're catching up much faster. Yeah. We, well, you did it here in, in Britain and it took you some 70 years to uh, double the income, which was amazing. It was something that should have taken 1,000 years according to previous trends. It only took 70 years, but you had to do all of it by yourself. Well, you got you some say, immigrants and technologies from other Would you say England places. was the first country to do it? Or the Dutch Republic? The I, Dutch I did it, but not in an industrialized way. I mean, the... Do you think so? I mean, they had industrial output. They just didn't have coal to power it. They yeah. used peat and wind. If I mean, you I, really had to do that game, I think the Chinese did it first in the 13th century. Um, okay, almost but, starting some sort of proto-industrialization. Okay. Um, but it doesn't take off. I mean, this is a really no, interesting point. It doesn't. And the reason I think it's really interesting is because pessimists say, you know, the world might regress. People say, you know, look at the rise of protectionist politicians, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn in this country or Donald Trump in America. Um, we have had instances in the historic past where you've had this incredible material progress. And then for, for various reasons, it, it stalls. And yeah. you mentioned China, 13th century China. Yeah. I would also argue Abbasid, Abbasid Iraq. Definitely. Um, I, I would even argue, actually, the Dutch, weirdly. They, yeah. they had the world's first industrial takeoff, but also yeah. the world's first deindustrialization. Why? Yeah. What, what do you think? What do you think we've got to be on, on guard for? What do you think we need to be wary of? Yeah. Um, you know, because we assume the world's going to get better. Yeah. What, what, what do you think might stop it? Well, it depends on how specific you want to be in history, but I definitely agree. We have those efflorescences in history and they peter off or they're destroyed. If you want to be specific, I'd say the first lesson of economic history is do not be invaded by the Mongols because that <laughs> always uh, helpful. Hurts, uh, hurts a lot. Yeah. Uh, but 
you mean I mean you can get back after invasions as well because the knowledge is there the ability to get back to the same technologies it's still there what changed it both the Abbasids and in in China uh, Song China and afterwards I would say is a change in mentality a after having been exposed to those threats invasions uh, uh, disasters they turn inwards. It's sort of a mental regression in a way where people say the problem was that we were too open, we were too innovative, and that hurt us. Can um, we hear echoes of that now? That's, the, <laughs> that's my main fear right yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a cliche, but we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Because in the period when people said, we've gone too far, now it's time to sort of... Uh, be content with what we've got, protect yeah. what we've got. That's the moment when you build walls, mentally, but also physically. Uh, you avoid trade, you avoid experiments and innovation. And that's the moment when you began, begin to go backwards. It's interesting because I'm, I'm, I'm a classical liberal. I'm, I'm very much in favor of globalization. I think it's a miracle that I can drink Rwandan coffee. I can eat grapes grown in Brazil. And they cost a fraction of what they would have done 10, 15 years ago. It's, it's a modern miracle. but. I, I used to, when I was in Parliament, say to constituents of mine, the world is getting better. And they would, they would nod and agree materially, but then they would say, hang on, there's a, there's a downside to this. Globalization also means you, you have large numbers of people who perhaps don't share your, your values, living in your country, it creates problems of, of multiculturalism. How would you respond to that? Yeah. Would you say that that, that that is a price to pay, or would you say actually those concerns aren't, aren't valid because they're going to disappear. I think it depends on which kinds of values you're talking about. When it comes to matters of taste, I think it's a great thing that we have a more pluralist society uh -huh. where people come up with strange weird new ideas about coffee and, and food and how to get around town I remember. I so remember on. growing up in London um, in my 20s and the coffee was quite, you would go into a cafe and occasionally you would even be served instant coffee. It was quite disgusting whereas now yeah. you know you get these wonderful yeah. concoctions um, it's, you know, there, there are undoubted benefits to, to, to learning from other countries how to eat and drink properly. Yeah, and we see proportionally that new ideas, new strange weird ideas, and every good idea used to be weird originally, they often come from people who look at our problems with new fresh eyes yeah. because they have something else. It's new combinations, and that's great. That's why we have more Nobel laureates or immigrants than who are sort of born in, in the city where they made their discoveries. But if the values are sort of a something that's opposed to open, liberal, tolerant society. That is a problem. I happen to think, though, when it comes to immigration and the vast majority of people, I think this is exaggerated. Uh, and it's exaggerated because people tend not to uh, understand or, or remember that there's self-selection. People, if, if you're thinking, if this place happens to end up in a war situation or something like that, who would be the first to move? Would it be those who are most attached to blood and soil back here? Or would it be those who are more cosmopolitan, open and tolerant? Obviously, it's the, the latter one. Uh, and, and this is Milton Friedman's famous argument in favor of illegal immigration. Yeah. I think he argued somewhat facetiously that people with the oomph and drive to get up and go were precisely the people America needed. Right. And we, what we do see also, if people come from areas where they are born into a more reactionary fundamentalist mindset obviously some of that will still linger even if they do move to other places but what we do see around the world is that everywhere 
where we see modernization, economic, social, technological values change as well. And they're changing dramatically. Look at how it would have been impossible for two gay men to sit on a bench around the Bank of England here. 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Quite right. And I mean, they would have had undercover policemen trying to provoke yeah. them. Uh, but this is why I find it quite interesting when people talk about Western values, because they're not static. Um, the country and you know, people say, we had a rather inane discussion in this country 10 or 15 years ago about British values. Yeah. The politician said, we've got to make people sign up to British values. Yeah. People then said, what are those? And they said, fairness. Okay, find me a yeah. country that doesn't believe in fairness. The rule of law. Find me a country that says, we don't believe in the rule of law. I mean, in a sense, what we regard as Western values, some might say are universal. And we've reached a stage where you yeah. know, people in Hong Kong want yeah. what people in London want. And they're not prepared to have small elites outside their control yeah. tell them what to do. I absolutely think that's the case. And if you look at world value surveys, and you do notice that, for example, in the Muslim Arab world, uh, people have more reactionary attitude to things like gender equality, gay rights and, and tolerance generally. But those values among the youngest generation there are more liberal now than they were in the US and so even they're changing in the 1970s. Right. So even in those areas, it's changing because right. people see more things, technology, uh, cell phones. It gives them new ideas, new revolutionary yeah. it, it would ideas. be remiss of me. I mean, I, I share your view of open, globalized, interdependent society. I think the, this network of specialization and exchange, it's a miracle. I'm, I'm of the age where I, I still look at a smartphone. And quite often when I use the smartphone, I, I use it. To, to come to our meeting, it, it directed me through which streets of London to, to walk. You could even I, tell me that you were running five minutes late. <laughs> but it, it strikes me as extraordinary every time I do that. Um, and you think of the, the, the global interdependence to produce a computer that is so, so ubiquitous, we don't even talk about going online anymore. It's just a, a, it's a permanent yeah. condition. Um, I, I, I get that completely, but isn't there a slight danger that it's not so much populism, it's not the populists that, that bring an end to this or call time on this, but it's the elites. We see, for example, in China, an increasingly authoritarian regime that's undoing much of the yeah. Deng era liberalization. You made a very famous film about India, about how it's catching up. Isn't there a slight danger that some Indian rulers start to emulate the old yeah. pre-Raj uh, Mughal dynasty? We see this in Turkey, where we've got a leader who consciously says he's going to yeah. rule like an Ottoman. And I would even argue in Europe, we see an elite that I would say is behaving increasingly like a Habsburg ruling elite, which is one of the reasons why we, we, we've had this Brexit debate. Do, do, do you think there's a danger that actually this Anglo-American epoch where elites tended to be liberal is slowly coming to an end and a multipolar world sees a yeah. reversion? amongst some of the body politics out there? I think that's definitely a danger. I often return to a great book by Virginia Postrel uh, called uh, The Future and Its Enemies, where she points out that we love the future, we love progress and openness, but there are two enemies that we should be worried about. The first one are sort of the nostalgic, populist, wasn't it better in the 1950s? <laughs> exactly. Let's let's go back before we had all these problems, yeah. as every generation yeah. has said back to sort of ancient Mesopotamia, basically. But there's also another enemy, she points out. Those who believe in progress, but in the one true way. They think they know 
how this is going to be done. The perfect technology, the right attitude, the right values, and they want to impose it from above. And that's what I think our elites are often doing. They're so certain of that, the rightness of that, that, that they've, they've got all these MBAs, they've done degrees that give them an exaggerated sense of their own, own wisdom. Exactly, and an exaggerated sense of order. They think uh, they don't like progress being done in a strange weird that creates lots of um, unintended consequences. They know how this is going to be done. Look at the debate about the environment. We, yeah, we do have some sort of remnants of the reactionary environmentalist movement. They just want to dismantle industry. But I think the main threat is the, the elitist attitude that, no, we know the one true green technology that's going to get us there. Let's yeah. just pick the green winners subsidize those technologies, those businesses. Do you think there's a real danger of that? You know, yeah. Someone might say it's, it's nuclear power or someone might say it's electric cars and, and actually it's not. Exactly. Whereas the only good way to the future, the only way to the future is to say, I have no idea how we're going to solve this. So let's use the ideas of millions, billions of people who experiment with their own ideas. Are you saying that in a sense the future is evolutionary or a happy future is by definition evolutionary? Yeah. And things get unhappy when you try and direct the future. Exactly. I mean, why didn't the Soviet Union invent the personal computer? It wasn't <laughs> that they didn't know what it was all about. They had yeah. the, all the industrial espionage. They just said, what's the use yeah. for it? Sort of spending these tens of even, thousands of, of, of dollars for sorting library cards, what's the point? But this crazy ecos ecosystem of venture capitalists, hippies, entrepreneurs, some believed in Boom this crazy and idea, and, destruction. and then it happened. I mean, even, even, even in the West, we're all familiar with the idea that in the 60s and 70s, experts said computers would be mainframes. We, we yeah. now carry around in our pocket um, little, little, little bits of computing power. Exactly. Um, there's no, there's no. I mean, there are giant servers, but there's, yeah. there's not the mainframes that people assume. Yeah. Um, talking about Brexit, you're, you're a classical liberal. Um, where do you see the Brexit debate? Do you? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? Do you, does, it, does it bother you that the UK leaves the European Union? Do you think that, that, that there are danger signs for, for Europe and for Britain if that happens? Yeah. Well, as a Swede, it bothers me because we're losing <laughs> our most powerful friend. Why don't in, you join us? In, uh, in the EU. <laughs> um, the problem is that we are too dependent on the European market. Right. And, and what I think... I, Generally, I'm in favor of institutional competition. I think it's incredibly important with different rules and regulations because then we can see what works out. And, and in that regard, the EU can be our best friend, but it can also be our greatest threat, depending on what happens. Because it could be this open market where we just experiment with different rules and then people Goods and services, capital can move to the place. Yeah, where I mean, if, if it was that, I, I would have never advocated yeah. leaving. If it was but that. the moment where you begin to standardize and regulate from above, you undermine that yeah. whole thing yeah. completely. I mean, I, I remember there was a, a very famous case in the 1980s called the Cassis Dijon case. And it basically um, marked for me the moment when the EU ceased to be this idea yeah. of, in effect, mutual standard recognition. If it's legal to buy and sell a product yeah. in Spain, it should be legal to buy and sell it in, in Germany and, and vice versa. Yeah. And it became, uh, from then on, and the single market, really, really, from 1992 onwards, became this vehicle for saying, there is only one correct standard, and yeah. it must be it must be followed throughout the, the EU. Yeah. And do, 
does it bother you that Europe hasn't produced any big, I mean, Sweden's perhaps the one exception to this, but generally speaking, Europe hasn't produced anything like the big tech giants that America and, and China have produced. Do you think this is a, a sign of Europe's weakness or, or something that could be addressed? I think that's a sign of, of weakness, definitely. And <laughs> traditionally, it's, it's not for lack of trying, but the problem is that they had this attitude, the one true way. I mean, we had an attempt to create the European Google, Quero. It's sort of a, a French-German really? attempt when was to agree. I, I never heard of that. This, no, no one has. Was that, <laughs> was that before the, Google? The, no, it was an attempt to compete with Google, basically. How funny. Uh, yeah, but wasted a lot of, of tax resources on doing this, but of course... Was there a waiting list for the answer? You had to fill in a form and <laughs> six months later you would be told. Well, the problem was that they couldn't make their mind up because they, they had different attitudes. So. The French wanted a more image-based uh, search engine. The Germans they both didn't. thought they knew what the future looked like, and it all, and it all collapsed, obviously. And and that's the problem. We often had this attitude. What we need is sort of wild west capitalism. We're sort of guys in garages come up with ideas we hate, but some of them are going to take off. We don't really have that mindset or those regulations. Do you think it's a mindset? I mean, it's clearly not a shortage of capital. There's a lot of capital in Europe. Yeah. It's it's clearly not a lack of education. There are some very, very, here in London, I mean, there, there are people from around Europe, around the world with very, very good qualifications and technological and technical expertise. But it, 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 it seems that no one's yet really come up with a convincing reason as to why, why Europe's not, not innovate, innovated the way that, that, that others have. You know, he who has satisfied his thirst turns his back to the well. Yeah. And I think that's uh, my great fear right now, that uh, we take all these technologies, goods and services for granted, we don't understand the pillars of progress and we have to defend those constantly. Thank you. It's been wonderful having you. Um, you. I'm really grateful for you giving up some of your time. And thank you.